Chapter 3 of the Autobiography of a Thief. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Autobiography of a Thief by Hutchins Hapgood. Chapter 3. Mixdale Life in the Fourth and Seventh Wards. For a time, a short time, after I left the tombs, I was quiet. My relatives threw the gallows con into me hard, but at that time I was proof against any arguments they could muster. They were not able to show me anything that was worthwhile. They could not deliver the goods, so what was the use of talking? Although I was a disgrace at home, I was high cockalorum among the boys in the neighborhood. They began to look up to me, as I had looked up to the grafters at the corner saloon. They admired me because I was a fighter and had done time. I went up in their estimation because I had suffered in the good cause. And I began to get introductions to the older grafters in the seventh ward, grafters with diamond pins and silk hats. It was not long before I was added harder than ever, uptown and downtown. I not only continued my trade as a mall buzzer, but began to spread myself, got to be quite an adept in touching men for vests and supers and fronts, and every now and then shoved the queer or worked a little game of swindling. Our stamping ground for supers and vests at that time was Fulton, Nassau, Lower Broadway and Wall Streets, and we covered our territory well. I used to work alone considerably. I would board a car with a couple of newspapers and would say, News, boss, to some man sitting down, and would shove the paper in front of his face as a stall, and then pick his super, or even his entire front. Watch and chain. If you will stand for a newspaper under your chin, I can even get your socks. Many is the gent I have left in the car with his vest entirely unbuttoned and his front gone. When I couldn't get the chain, I would snap the ring of the watch with my thumb and forefinger, giving the thief's cough to drown the slight noise made by the breaking ring, and get away with the watch, leaving the chain dangling. Instead of a newspaper, I would often use an overcoat as a stall. It was only when I was on the hurry-up, however, that I worked alone. It's more dangerous than working with a mob. But if I needed a dollar quick, I'd take any risk. I'd jump on a car and tackle the first sucker I saw. If I thought it was not diplomatic to try for the front, and if there was no stone in sight, I'd content myself with the clock. Watch. But it was safer and more sociable to work with other guys. We usually went in mobs of three or four, and our methods were much more complicated than when we were simply mall buzzing. Each thief had his special part to play, and his duty varied with the position of the sucker and the pocket the leather was in. If the sucker was standing in the car, my stall would frequently stand right in front of him, facing him while I would put my hand under the stall's arm and pick the sucker's leather or super. The other stalls would be distracting the attention of the sucker or looking out for possible interruptions. When I had got possession of the leather, I would pass it quickly to the stall behind me, and he would vamoose. Sometimes I would back up to the victim, put my hand behind me, break his ring, and pick the super. Or I would face his back, reach round, unbutton his vest while a pal stalled in front with a newspaper, a bunch of flowers, a fan, or an overcoat, and get away with his entire front. A dip, as I have said, pays special attention to his personal appearance. It is his stock in trade. But when I began to meet boys who had risen above the grade of mall buzzers, I found that the dip, as opposed to other grafters, had many other advantages too. He combines pleasure and instruction with business, for he goes to the football games, the New London races, to swell theaters where the graft is good, and to lectures. I have often listened to Bob Ingersoll, the greatest orator, in my opinion, that ever lived. I enjoyed his talk so much that I sometimes forgot to graft. 
but as a general rule I was able to combine instruction with business. I very seldom dropped a red super because of an oratorical flourish, but the supers did not come my way all the time. I had some waiting to do, and in the meantime I improved my mind. Then a dip travels to more than other grafters. He jumps out to fairs and large gatherings of all descriptions, and grows to be a man of the world. When in the city, he visits the best dance halls, and is popular because of his good clothes, his dough, and his general information, with men as well as women. He generally lives with a mall who has seen the world, and who can add to his fund of information. I know a dip who could not read or write until he met a mall who gave him a general education and taught him to avoid things that interfered with his line of graft. She also took care of his personal appearance and equipped him generally for an A number one pickpocket. Women are much the same, I believe, in every rank of life. It was at this time when I was a kid of 15 that I first met Sheeny Annie, who was a famous shoplifter. She was 21 years old and used to give me good advice. Keep away from heavy workers, burglars she would say. There is a big bit in that. She had lived in Grafton ever since she was a tidbit, and she knew what she was talking about. I did not work with her until several years later, but I might as well tell her sad story now. I may say, as a kind of preface, that I have always liked the girl grafter who could take care of herself instead of sucking the blood out of some man. When I find a little working girl who has no other ambition than to get a little home together, with a little knick-knack on the wall, a little husband, and a little child, I don't care for her. She is a non-entity. But such was not Sheenie Annie, who was a bright, intelligent, ambitious girl. When she liked a fellow, she would do anything for him, but otherwise she wouldn't let a man come near her. The little Jewish lassie named Annie was born in the toughest part of New York. Later on, as she advanced in years and became an expert pilferer, she was given the nickname of Sheenie. She was brought up on the street, surrounded by thieves and prostitutes. Her only education was what she received during a year or two in the public school. She lived near Grand Street, then a popular shopping district. As a very little girl, she and a friend used to visit the dry goods stores and steal any little notion they could. There was a crowd of young pickpockets in her street, and she soon got onto this graft and became so skillful at it that older guns of both sexes were eager to take her under their tuition and finish her education. The first time I met her was in a well-known dance hall, Billy McGlory's, and we became friends at once, for she was a good girl and full of mischief. She was not pretty exactly, but she was passable. She was small, with thick lips, plump, had good teeth, and eyes as fine and piercing as any I ever saw in man or woman. She dressed well and was a good talker, as nimble-witted and as good a judge of human nature as I have ever met in her sex. Sheeny Annie's graft broadened, and from dipping and small shoplifting she rose to a position where she doubled up with a mob of clever hotel workers and made large amounts of money. Here was a girl from the lowest stratum of life, not pretty or well-shaped, but whom men admired because of her wit and cleverness. A big contractor in Philadelphia was her friend for years. I've seen letters from him offering to marry her, but she had something better. For she was an artist at penny-weighting and hoisting. The police admitted that she was unusually clever at these two graphs, and they treated her with every consideration. Penny-weighting is a very slick graft. It's generally worked in pairs, by either sex or both sexes. 
A man, for instance, enters a jewelry store and looks at some diamond rings on a tray. He prices them and notes the costly ones. Then he goes to a fawny shop, imitation jewelry, and buys a few diamonds which match the real ones he has noted. Then he and his pal, usually a woman, enter the jewelry store and ask to see the rings. Through some little con they distract the jeweler's attention, and then one of them, and at this Shiniani was particularly good, substitutes the bogus diamonds for the good ones, and leaves the store without making a purchase. I can give an example of how Shiniani hoisted from my own experience with her. On one occasion, when I was about 18 years old, Shini and I were on a racket together. We'd been going it for several days and needed some dough. We went into a large tailoring establishment where I tried on some clothes as a stall. Nothing suited me, I took good care of that, but in the meantime Annie had taken two costly overcoats, folded them into flat bundles, and raising her skirt quickly had hidden the overcoats between her legs. We left the store together. She walked so straight that I thought she had got nothing, but when we entered a saloon a block away and the swag was produced I was forced to laugh. We fenced the overcoats and with the proceeds continued our spree. Once Sheeny fell at this line of graft. She had stolen some costly sealskins from a well-known furrier and had got away with them. But on her third visit to the place she came to grief. She was going out with a sealskin coat under her skirt when the office boy who was skylarking about ran into her and upset her. When the salesman, who had gone to her rescue, lifted her up, she lost her grip on the sealskin sack and it fell to the floor. It was a blow, of course, and she got nailed, but as she had plenty of fall money and a well-known politician dead to rights, she only got nine months in the penitentiary. Sheeny was such a good shoplifter that, with only an umbrella as a stall, she could make more money in a week than a poor needlewoman could earn in months. But she did not care for the money. She was a good fella and was in for fun. She was wise, too, and I liked to talk to her, for she understood what I said and was up to snuff, which was very piquant to me. She had done most of the grafts that I had done myself, and her tips were always valuable. To show what a good fella she was, her sweetheart Jack and another burglar named Jerry were doing night work once, when they were unlucky enough to be nailed. Sheeny Annie went on the stand and swore perjury in order to save Jack. He got a year. But Jerry, who had committed the same crime, got six. While he was in prison, Annie visited him and put up a plan by which he escaped, but he would not leave New York with her, and was caught and returned to stir. Annie herself fell in half a dozen cities, but never received more than a few months. After I was released from serving my second bit in the pen, I heard Annie had died insane. An old girl pal of hers told me that she had died a horrible death and that her last words were about her old friends and companions. Her disease was that which attacks only people with brains. She died of paresis. Two other girls whom I knew when I was fifteen turned out to be famous shoplifters, Big Lena and Blonde Mamie, who afterwards married Tommy, the famous cracksman. They began to graft when they were about fourteen, and Mamie and I used to work together. I was Mamie's first fella, and we had royal good times together. Lena, poor girl, is now doing five years in London, but she was one of the most cheerful malls I ever knew. I met her and Mamie for the first time one day as they were coming out of an oyster house on Grand Street, and I thought they were good-looking tidbits, and took them to a picnic. We were so late that instead of going home, Mamie and I spent the night at the house of Lena's sister, 
whose husband was a receiver of stolen goods, or fence as it is popularly called. In the morning Lena, Mamie and I made our first touch together. We got a few books uptown, and Mamie banged a satchel at Stern's. After that we often jumped out together, and took in the excursions. Sometimes Mamie or Lena would dip and I would stall, but more frequently I was the pick. We used to turn our swag over to Lena's sister's husband, Max, who would give us about one-sixth of its value. These three girls certainly were a crackerjack trio. You couldn't find their likes nowadays. Even in my time, most of the girls I knew did not amount to anything. They generally married or did worse. There were few legitimate grafters among them. Since I had been back this time, I have seen so many of the old picks and night workers I used to know. They tell the same story. There are no malls now who can compare with Big Lena, Blonde Mamie, and Sheenie Annie. Times are bad, anyway. After my experience in the tombs, I rose very rapidly in the world of graft and distanced my old companions. Zack, the lad with whom I had touched my first mall, soon seemed very tame to me. I fell away from him because he continued to eat bolivers, cookies, patronized the free baths, and stole horse blankets and other trivial things when he could not get leathers. He was not fast enough for me. Zack got there, nevertheless, and for little or nothing, for several years later I met him in state's prison. He told me he was going to Colorado on his release. I again met him in prison on my second bit. He was then going to Chicago. On my third hit, I ran up against the same old jailbird, but this time his destination was Boston. Today, he's still in prison. As I fell away from the softies, I naturally joined hands with more ambitious grafters, and with those with brains and with good connections in the upper world. As a lad of from 15 to 18, I associated with several boys who are now famous politicians in this city, and on the level, as that phrase is usually meant. Jack Lawrence was a well-educated boy, and high up as far as his family was concerned. His father and brothers held good political positions, and it was only a taste for booze and for less genteel grafting that held Jack back. As a boy of 16 or 17, he was the trusted messenger of a well-known Republican politician named J.I.D. One of Jack's pals became a federal judge, and another, Mr. D., who was never a grafter, is at present a city magistrate in New York. While Jack was working for J.I.D., the politician, he was arrested several times. Once he abstracted a large amount of money from the vest pocket of a broker as he was standing by the old Herald building. He was nailed and sent word to his employer, the politician, who went to police headquarters, highly indignant at the arrest of his trusted messenger. He easily convinced the broker and the magistrate that Jack was innocent, and as far as the Republican politician's business was concerned, Jack was honest, for J.I.D. trusted him, and Jack never deceived him. There are some thieves who will not touch those who place confidence in them, and Jack was one of them. After he was released, the following conversation, which Jack related to me, took place between him and the politician in the latter's office. How was it, the big one said, that you happened to get your fingers into that man's pocket? Jack gave the innocent con. None of that, said J.I.D., who was a wise guy. I know you have a habit of taking small change from strangers' pockets. Jack then came off his perch and gave the patron a lesson in the art of throwing the mitt, dipping. At this, the politician grinned and remarked, You will either become a reputable politician, for you have the requisite character, or you will die young. Jack was feared, hated, and envied by the other young fellows in J.I.D.'s office, 
for, as he was such a thorough rascal, he was a great favorite with those high up. But he never got J.I.D.'s full confidence until after he was tested in the following way. One day the politician put his gold watch on a table in his office. Jack saw it, picked it up, and put it in the big one's drawer. The latter entered the room, saw that the watch was gone, and said, I forgot my watch. I must have left it at home. Now, said Jack, you left it on the table, and I put it in your desk. A smile spread over the patron's face. Jack, I can trust you. I put it there just to test your honesty. The boy hesitated a moment, then, looking into the man's face, replied, I know right well you did, for you're a wise guy. After that, J.I.D. trusted Jack even with his love affairs. As Jack advanced in life, he became an expert gun, and was often nailed and frequently brought before Magistrate D., his old friend. He always got the benefit of the doubt. One day he was arraigned before the magistrate, who asked the flyman the nature of the complaint. It was the same as usual, dipping. Jack, of course, was indignant at such an awful accusation, but the magistrate told him to keep still, and turning to the policeman, asked the culprit's name. When the copper told him, the magistrate exclaimed, Why, that's not his name. I knew him twenty years ago, and he was a damned rascal then. But that was not his name. Jack was shocked at such language from the bench, and swore with such vehemence that he was innocent, that he once again got the benefit of the doubt, and was discharged, and this time justly, for he had not made this particular touch. He was hounded by a copper looking for a reputation. Jack, when he was set free, turned to the magistrate and said, Your Honor, I thank you, but you only did your duty to an innocent man. The magistrate had a good laugh and remarked, Jack, I wouldn't believe you if you swore on a stack of Bibles. A curious trait in a professional grafter is that if he is pinched for something he did not do, although he has done a hundred other things for which he has never been pinched, he will put up such a wail against the abominable injustice that an honest man accused of the same offense would seem guilty in comparison. The honest man, even if he has the ability of a Philadelphia lawyer, could not do the strong indignation act that is characteristic of the unjustly accused grafter. Old thieves guilty of a thousand crimes will nourish revenge for years against the copper or judge who sends them up to stir on a false accusation. When I was from 15 to 17 years old, I met the man who some think is now practically leader of Tammany Hall. I will call him Senator Wetcoin. At that time, he was a boy 18 or 19 and strictly on the level. He knew all the grafters well, but kept off the rocky path himself. In those days, he hung out in an oyster shanty and ran a paper stand. It's said he materially assisted Mr. Pulitzer in making a success of the world when that paper was started. He never drank in spite of the name I have given him. In fact, he derived his real nickname from his habit of abstinence. He was the friend of a Bowery girl who is now a well-known actress. She, too, was always on the level in every way, although her brother was a grafter. This case, and that of Senator Wetcoin, proved that even in an environment of thieves it is possible to tread the path of virtue. Wetcoin would not even buy a stolen article, and his reward was great. He became captain of his election district, ran for assemblyman, was elected, and got as high a position, with the exception of that of governor, as is possible in the state, while in the city probably no man is more powerful. Senator Wetcoin made no pretensions to virtue. He never claimed to be better than others. But in spite of the accusations against him, he has done far more for the public good than all the professional reformers, religious and other. 
He took many noted and professional criminals in the prime of their success, gave them positions, and by his influence kept them honest ever since. Some of them are high up, even run gin mills today. I met one of them after my second bit, who used to make his thousands. Now he has a salary of $18 a week and is contented. I had known him in the old days, and he asked, What are you doing? The same old thing, I admitted. What are you up to? I've squared it, Jim, he replied earnestly. There's nothing in the graft. Why don't you go to sea? I'd as leaf go to stir, I replied. We had a couple of beers and a long talk, and this is the way he gave it to me. I never thought I could live on $18 a week. I have to work hard, but I save more money than I did when I was making hundreds a week. But when it comes hard, it does not go so easy. I look twice at my earnings before I part with them. I live quietly with my sister and I'm happy. There's nothing in the other thing, Jim. Look at Hope. Look at Dan Noble. Look at all the other noted grafters who stole millions and now are willing to throw the brotherly hand for a small borrow. If I had the chance to make thousands tomorrow in the underworld, I would not chance it. I'm happy. Better still, I'm contented. Only for Mr. Wetcoin, I'd be splitting matches in a stir these many years. Show me the reformer who has done as much for friends and the public as Wetcoin. A touch that pleased me mightily as a kid was made just before my second fall. Superintendent Walling had returned from a summer resort and found that a mob of nucks, another name for pickpockets, had been tearing open the Third Avenue cars outside of the post office. About fifty complaints had been coming in every day for several weeks, and the superintendent thought he would make a personal investigation and get one of the thieves dead to rights. He made a front that he was easy and went down the line. He did not catch any dips, but when he reached police headquarters, he was minus his gold watch and $250 in money. The story leaked out, and Superintendent Walling was unhappy. There would never have been a comeback for this touch if an old gun, who had just been nailed, had not squealed as to who touched the boss. Little Mick had done it, and the result was that he got his first experience in the House of Refuge. It was only a short time after Little Mick's fall that it came my turn to go to the House of Refuge. I had grown tougher and much stuck on myself and was taking bigger risks. I certainly had a swelled head in those days. I was 17 years old at the time and was grafting with Jack T., who is now in Burns's book, and one of the swellest Peter men, safe blowers, in the profession. Jack and I, along with another pal, Joe Quigley, got a duffer, an Englishman, for his front on Grand Street near Broadway. It was a blow, and I, who was the wire, got nailed. If I had not given my age as 15, I should have been sent to the penitentiary. As it was, I went to the House of Refuge for a year. Joe Quigley slipped up on the same game. He was 20, but gave his age as 15. He'd had a good shave by the tomb's barber. There was a false date of birth written in his aunt's Bible, which was produced in court by his lawyer, and he would probably have gone with me to the House of Refuge had not a central office man who knew him happened in. Joe was settled for four years in Sing Sing. When I arrived at the House of Refuge, my pedigree was taken and my hair clipped. Then I went into the yard, looked down the line of boys on parade, and saw about forty young grafters whom I knew. One of them is now a policeman in New York City, and, moreover, on the level. Some others, too, but not many, who were then in the House of Refuge are now honest. Several are running big saloons and are captains of their election districts, or even higher up. These men are exceptions, however, for certainly the House of Refuge was a school for crime unspeakably bad habits were contracted there. 
the older boys wrecked the younger ones, who, comparatively innocent, confined for the crime of being orphans, came in contact with others entirely hardened. The daytime was spent in the school and the shop, but there was an hour or two for play, and the boys would arrange to meet for mischief in the basement. Severe punishments were given to lads of fifteen, and their tasks were harder than those inflicted in state's prison. We had to make twenty-four pairs of overalls every day, and if we did not do our work, we were beaten on an unprotected and tender spot until we promised to do our task. One morning I was made to cross my hands and was given fifteen blows on the palms with a heavy rattan stick. The crime I had committed was inattention. The principal had been preaching about the prodigal son. I, having heard it before, paid little heed, particularly as I was a Catholic and his teachings did not count for me. They called me a papist and beat me as I described. I say without hesitation that lads sent to an institution like the House of Refuge, the Catholic Protectory, or the Juvenile Asylum might better be taken out and shot. They learn things there they could not learn even in the streets. A newsboy's life is pure in comparison. As for me, I grew far more desperate there than I had been before, and I was far from being one of the most innocent of boys. Many of the others had more to learn than I had, and they learned it. But even I, hard as I already was, acquired much fresh information about vice and crime, and gathered in more pointers about the technique of graft. End of chapter 3